like arch conspiracy loon and all-round purveyor of dangerous, brain-rotting fake news Alex Jones, wrestler Hulk Hogan has, in recent years, had to declare in court that for legal reasons his person is divided into his real self and his fictitious on-stage character. As astonishing as this turn of events was, it really came as no surprise to wrestling fans who for years had been used to Hogan inventing a semi-mythical version of his own life story. When Hogan's first <clears throat> autobiography dropped in 2002, snarky wrestling magazines joked that booksellers wouldn't know whether or not to stock it under fiction, deciding in the end that it most correctly belonged under science fiction. With the recent crumbling of a shared reality that characterises our post-truth age, the ramblings of an eccentric, rich, racist narcissist who likes to create his own alternative facts should provide few surprises to listeners of this podcast. But then Hogan inhabits a fascinating world, the world of professional wrestling, one that comes with its own rich lore. It's funny, it's ruthless, and it's utterly absurd. While I admit that this is something of an off-topic episode, the nature of truth is key to the humour of the story. And sometimes, you know, we here at the Cabin in the Woods just enjoy a little bit of fun. With that in mind, I'm cracking open a bottle of Cold Dark Heart, a porter from O'Shea's Brewing. It's chilled, which should horrify my British listeners, but that's how we do it in Ireland and in North America, at least on a hot day like this, in the cabin somewhere in Wild West Cork. Now, somewhere amidst my shelves is the tape of my conversation with my brother Donal, a lifelong wrestling fan, on the topic of Hulk Hogan. I'm Kean, and you're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. This episode, Fake News, The Fictional Life of Hulk Hogan, Part 1. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Okay, Hulk Hogan. We're going to talk about Hulk Hogan through the uh, through the medium of his 2002 book Hollywood Hulk Hogan, written by Hulk Hogan and Michael Jan Friedman. So my idea, Donald, is that I will read bits of this book, um, and then you can tell me with your vast wrestling knowledge uh, how much bullshit or true it really is. How does that sound? Sounds pretty good. Uh, we get get ourselves orient oriented here with the book by saying I bought this book brand new hardcover uh, Waterstones in Cork City in 2002 or 3 can you tell me do you have the book in front it, of you it's 2002 it is publication date 2002 okay so Hulk Hogan was back in the WWE slash F that year after spending a long time in the uh, in the WCW and all that and made a big triumphant comeback and it was a huge deal for WWF fans and he kind of uh, had a meteoric kind of re-rise to the, the top of the summit. And so, of course, they rushed this book out. <laughs> like, he wasn't even back in the WWF and back on top um, for a calendar year before this book came out. And I, at the time, was a gigantic Hulkamaniac, big-time <laughs> NWO-ite, as Hulk Hogan says. And I couldn't wait to get my hands on it. And I probably paid the guts of, I don't know, 
25 or 30 euros for it, like a total, or maybe 17. I, I'm a bit more acclimatized to book prices in Canada now. I, I would imagine, I yeah. For bookstores, but book, books in Ireland are generally uh, far more fairly priced than they are in Canada. But I definitely paid whatever the equivalent of top dollar for a book at that time was, I paid it. And I couldn't wait to get my hands on it. And at the time, I actually wasn't particularly clued in to the backstage world of wrestling. And I, I, I was still what you might call a kind of a mark in the sense that I obviously I knew it was fake and didn't care. That's fine. But I also like didn't know anything about the personalities of the performers outside of what they showed me on TV. And I was pretty happy to digest the official narrative that WWE Inc., which is basically just the deranged ego of Vince McMahon, would present to me. So I read this book and I believed every word. And... I, I liked it. I didn't think that this was a, you know, a kind of a, an unknowing hatchet job on himself, which is what it actually is in lots of ways. And uh, I ate it up like a Hulkamaniac. Well, quick question. In, in, in the scheme of, you know, horrible, toxic, um, narcissist personalities that we deal with, you know, in, in, compared to the likes of Gene Simmons or Paul Stanley, like how bad is Hulk Hogan on that level? He's very bad, for sure. He's definitely worse than um, Paul Stanley. I'd say he defeats Paul Stanley hands down. Wow. Um, and then he's he's in competition with Gene Simmons, for sure. Wow. Um, for sure. Uh, Gene Simmons is probably more heinous on the question of, of sexism and misogyny. Um, Hulk Hogan is more heinous and disgusting on the question of racism. And then, and both of them are singularly ruthless in the pursuit of making sure that they stay uh, atop the summit at all costs, and will gladly stand on skulls to make sure they get there and swat people down uh, to make sure they stay there. So I said it's a toss-up between the two. But Hogan is un- unquestionably a toxic character, and what's particularly interesting. So I mentioned earlier on that there's an official WWE narrative that the kind of the the machine pumps out. Uh, you know, history be damned, facts be damned kind of stuff. And Hogan is one of these guys that's been spinning the yarn of his own kind of life in a certain fashion for so long that he has lost connection to truth entirely and doesn't, like, I think it's got to the point where he doesn't even know what actually happened in a lot of the kind of apocryphal events in his life. He only knows the version he's been telling that makes him look wonderful. To the extent the that in later years he had a, he had to didn't he have to say in court that he isn't he's playing a character and he isn't really himself in a kind of an alex jones like fashion well he outed himself as i mean he in what to one degree he really kind of showed the the truly bizarre nature of the wrestling business and what it does to people's personalities and set their senses sense of self in that he said that terry balea is one person and hulk hogan is another and at times even though they you know share the same mortal coil they're not actually uh, in the same place at the same time and that the, the line that got a lot of attention which you know again rightfully so and he deserves all the derision of the world for this was that he was asked under oath in the courtroom whether or not he had a 10 inch penis <laughs> and he said instead of saying no you know the, the correct answer would be I made a claim that I had this but it turns out not to be true it was machismo it was bravado or whatever that's a way to kind of you know, 
I suppose, safe face or whatever. Instead, he says that while it is true that Terry Jean Vallea does not have a 10-inch penis, Hulk Hogan has a 10-inch penis. <laughs> and the lawyer actually had to ask him, like, who am I talking to right now? <laughs> <laughs> so, it just, it just, and, and the, the thing is that, that, like, Hogan is a particularly extreme example of this kind of, I suppose, identity crisis of, you know, you, you work the fans to believe a version of yourself, you know, to be true for so long that at some point you end up working yourself and you, you, you haven't been honest with yourself for so long that you, you become become incapable of honesty. But it seems to me that, and I, and I think most of the, the keen uh, and astute observers of wrestling and probably all forms of pantomime, you know, whether it be the rock and roll business or whatever else, acting even to some extent probably, you lose connection to who you really are and that's something that seems to happen to almost all wrestlers where they can't stop working right and of course I mean working is in trying to convince the fans that what they're seeing is real in some capacity <laughs> um secondarily i have a memory from back in the day that so there's there's two hogan books that i'm aware of unless there were others uh, more recently but there's this book which is written pretty as you say like pretty much written for marks written for believers like he's not pretending that wrestling is real but in every other in every other way, he's he's like trying to sell the myth of Hulk Hogan as this like pretty much all around good guy and and savior of wrestling. And then he had some like very sticky things happen in his personal life. And then there's a second book, My Life Outside the Ring, from about ten years later, where he's like a little bit more honest and kind of gives a little more of the truth. Is that a fair? Be- yeah. Just just because things that happened that he could not deny and that he had to admit. Yeah, so one, one bit of, I suppose, contextual information that's important is, like I said, in 2002, when this book is written, it's kind of at the at the point where Hulkamania is, is resurgent, it's come back, he's, you know, driving ratings, he's selling tickets, he's getting big pops in the, in the arenas and all that, and, you know, the, it's printed by whatever um, publisher WWE had a deal with at the time, so it's, you know, it's... It's a tr- it's a kind of a lap of honor. It's a triumphant sort of look at me kicking ass like you always knew I would. And then the book from some years later is it breaks kayfabe a little bit more in that he had had somewhat of a fall from grace. Certainly, one of the big things was that he had divorced from his wife, and there were a lot of kind of I suppose stories out about the disharmony within their family and. His son had gotten in, into a car crash where a drink was taken and there was speeding involved. And I, uh, the, the, the person in the car on the other end, or else the person who was in the car with his son, Nick, I can't remember exactly, ended up paralyzed. And and so there was th- this book was sort of kind of a bit of, it had a kind of a contrite tone. And it was supposed to be a somber reflection rather than the kind of bicep <laughs> pumping, I'm great of the first book. But like the thing about Hogan is that even behind the curtain, Kayfabe still lives strong. So he's he's trying to pull back the curtain and tell you what's really going on, but he can't stop working. Like I said, he, the Kayfabe never ends, brother. He he, you know, so he's working the the, the contrition world tour rather than the. <laughs> the pythons and leg drops world tour but it's it's always 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 a work with him and it has been for so long that again like i said it's all it's almost as though his dishonesty is honesty in a weird way so with that in mind i thought it would be more fun to uh to go through the 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 original uh, bicep pumping 
you know, make your liver quiver, make your whatever. That the first book, which is a bit sillier and a bit more fun. Hollywood Hulk Hogan, I think it's called. If I'm not it's called correct. Hollywood Hulk Hogan, yeah. Um, which is the character he was uh, while he was with WCW, and he kept that for a little while when he went back to WWE. Yeah, so he, well, what he tried to do around this time in 2002 was to kind of like blend the two characters. So there was Hulk Hogan, who was a good guy. There was Hollywood Hogan, who was a bad guy or a heel. And then when he came back, he kept certain elements of the heel character, or at least the presentation of the heel character, whilst being a good guy again. So it became Hollywood Hulk Hogan. So in, in classic cheesy um, autobiography style, the book ends, uh, the book begins and ends with a kind of a bookend of like this big important moment. So he's, it's 2002. Uh, it's at the beginning of the year. He's about to go on stage with the or into the ring with the rock. Now, this was the beginning of his big comeback. I remember us watching this match as it happened, unless I'm mistaken. I feel like we did see this when it happened. I remember him coming back and there being a... I definitely saw it live. I There's a decent chance you were there too. It would have been in the middle of the night yeah. in Carter McElhenney's living room. Yes. <laughs> and uh, uh, honestly, that, like, again, I can't reiterate enough how that when Hogan came back to WRF in 2002, because we had very minimal access to WCW in Ireland. Uh, it was on TNT, which you could get on certain versions of multi-channel in Ireland, but it was pretty hard to get. And the standard multi-channel package that, you know, we never had, but other people had, would have Sky, and you could get uh, WWF on Sky. So, like, you know, pretty much everyone from Ireland and the UK would have grown up as wrestling fans watching WWF and we knew about WCW like I had a voracious appetite for all things wrestling and I loved the the video games and the figures and I used to look up websites where there would be South Park characters <laughs> like like <laughs> wrestlers and I loved all that stuff but when Hogan came back to the WWF in 2002 it was the first time I had really seen him live since I don't know, 1992 or 1993. Yeah, it was a real connection you know? to the old days at a time when it wasn't as easy to engage in nostalgia. Yeah, exactly. And so when we would have watched this match with The Rock, it was, you know, to borrow a phrase from the great one himself, it was electrifying. Like, I couldn't get enough of it. And you know what? Like, that match from WrestleMania 18, actually here in Canada, at the Sky Dome in Toronto, is kind of considered one of the greatest WrestleMania matches ever. Not because... Um, the actual work in the ring was of a particularly high quality because Hogan was already crocked. But just the the atmosphere was completely through the roof. Um, and uh, Toronto had always been a very big market for Hogan. They'd, al- they'd always loved him. And the, the thing that the match is famous for is that it was kind of like a impromptu double turn, which is that The Rock went in as the babyface and Hulk Hogan went in as the heel. And then uh, as the match started, the fans kind of organically switched and cheered Hogan and booed the rock a little bit oh, and so it was just it's just and it's in a 60,000 seat baseball stadium so it's just it was just an incredible spectacle and I think at that point Hogan was just so over that he could have gone in there and you know kind of just dropped the leg on someone and done the pose in a minute and I think that would have been a rapturous but he he kind of like got a decent match out of the rock and they did enough of the kicking out of each other's finishers before that became old hat and trite that it was a it was a huge huge deal one of my problems with the book is like i you know i came to this for a bit of a chuckle. i wanted to have a bit of a chuckle at his ego and at his obvious overblowing of of him being great all the time 
But I mean, the truth is he was he was huge. And this book covers the period of his career when he legitimately did help kick wrestling into the mainstream. So I, I'll need your help to try and see through the, the, the BS here. And, you know, when is he being truthful and when is he not? So strap in. Our first quote starts uh, right at that point uh, when he's walking out onto the Toronto Sky Dome to wrestle with The Rock. <laughs> and he says, Vince McMahon, the guy who runs the company, came over to join me as I waited for my music to start. I was so nervous and pumped up at the same time. I looked at him and I told him, Everybody screws with me, brother. My wife makes me work hard. My kids make me crazy. The government screws with me. The IRS screws with me. And sometimes even you screw with me, Vince. But out there, that's my damn house. And nobody can mess with me. Now I'm going out there to collect my money. I'll see you when I'm done. He looked at me like, huh? (laughs) 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 So uh, he he then has a... uh, a Dewey Cox moment where like the chapter ends and it's like, oh, you know, Hulk Hogan has to think about his whole life before he goes out on stage. And then the rest of the book, the rest of the book starts. And it pretty much the next chapter is like my mom and dad met about as far away from the Toronto Sky Dome as you can get. <laughs> oh, my God. So that would be Australia. Yeah. Well, he's talking about uh, Panama, actually. His, his dad worked in the Panama Canal Zone. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I'm going to go straight to... So well, I'll just a quick comment there. When he says I'm going out there to collect my money, I mean, he's being honest there. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like his relationship with Vince is interesting. Sometimes it does seem like they're genuinely friendly, but most of the time I just feel, look, they're just businessmen. They know that they've worked well for each other. And he tries to play off these moments sometimes as like, you know, he, he leaves WWE a few times in his career and then he meets Vince again. And he doesn't really know whether to make it, try and make it sound like it's this big emotional friendship moment or it's just money. The weird thing about Vince, right, is that these days he doesn't seem to have this hang up because I think he's 75 and, you know, his perception of time and age is, 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 you know, obviously pretty different and out of whack. But when, when Vince was younger, let's say in his 40s, he was really obsessed with the idea that, like, once someone hit, you know, over 35 or certainly 40, like, their sell-by date had been, you know, passed and we need to shit-can them. And so he tried multiple times. Like, so there was, a, you know, to get rid of Hogan and to put someone else younger and, quote-unquote, more vibrant on top. And so, like, there's a maybe a period between 84 and 88, 89, where Vince and Hogan were really thick as thieves. And they were, like, pretty close to, maybe not best friends, but very, very good friends, like personal friends. And then after that, it was kind of this weird, maybe cat-and-mouse game where Vince is trying to replace Hogan with someone younger. And Hogan is constantly, like, you know, plotting in the background, making sure that he doesn't lose his spot. And that he wants to kind of communicate to Vince that the whole company will go down the, the tubes unless they keep him on top. You know, that nobody can sell tickets like he can um, and all that. So they've got these multiple waves of, here's the new Hogan. Oh, no, it's not a new Hogan. And what's very funny is that Vince is very um, kind of, I don't know, addicted maybe to formulas and stuff. So like even after Hogan is gone from WWF, there's the new Hogan for years. And the new Hogan in the sense of like transformative star that can reshape the business was pretty much Steve Austin, Stone Cold. And in a very weird way, since then, which is, I mean, it's 20 bloody years ago now that Stone Cold was, you know, even on the way out, you know, Stone Cold retired in 2003, uh, which is 
incredible to think of. But since then, they've constantly tried to fashion the new face of the business into a stone cold. You know, John Cena kind of got to that summit organically, but never did the kind of transformative business that Hogan and Austin and obviously Rock as well did. But Vince, as you know, there's always been the where's the new Hogan and there's the where's the new kind of um, anti-hero authority defying badass, which is the Stone Cold mold. Um, so, you know, when you think about Hogan's relationship to Vince, pretty much since 89, 90, it's been this, you know, I don't need you, Terry. And then the brother, nobody can sell tickets like me, dude. And he's always like, one more run with the belt. You could, if you just give me one more run with the belt. And see, he was vindicated with that thinking in 2002 because they ended up giving him the belt, I think, in 2003 after there was a bit of, again, power play between the two of them. But if you look at Hulk Hogan's Instagram, even now, he's got this battered, broken down body with replaced joints and torn muscles everywhere. It's, I'd say his... Um, his spine looks like a roller coaster or something. And his skin just looks like an old leather sofa that's been left out in the desert sun for 10 years. He looks like, I don't know, some sort of Chinese duck or something. Well, baked. I, I don't know. He's, he's still gunning for a title run. On his Instagram, <laughs> he's pumping up those pythons, deflated as they are and worn down and weary. Like, if you can imagine if you stuck a straw in Diggy Pop and blew him up, that's kind of Hulk Hogan's looking Why like does that. he... He's still... Still putting on his Instagram, hashtag one more run, brother. Oh, gee. Why does he call them pythons? Like, is, is that a phrase that exists outside of Hulk Hogan, or did he invent it? Well, it exists outside of Hulk Hogan, but doesn't exist outside of wrestling. So Hulk Hogan got a fair amount of his rap, or his kind of shtick on the mic, from superstar Billy Graham, who was the four, first real, like, mega-roided-up uh, wrestler. Like, if you look at footage of superstar Billy Graham, in the 70s like his body is it's it's disgusting actually like it's so gigantic and he's but he's also so shredded down so he's like got mass in in the, in the muscular sense but he's also lean and so he's just like veins everywhere hogan was was bloated he had a different type of steroid body like when when they would when they would bill hogan at 303 pounds he was a sort of balloon actually whereas <laughs> superstar billy graham was way more defined but he billy graham was uh, in the evangelical missionaries and so he would go around and give speeches to like young kids and tell them go with christ and all this stuff and that's where brother comes from you know brother in christ and that's where he would say in the in the wwf the worldwide wrestling federation in the 70s for vince's dad vince vincent Ken, uh, not kennedy what's his name oh, i forget no anyway vince kennedy vincent kennedy senior when superstar Billy Graham would point to his arms, he would say, these are the largest arms in the world. These are the pythons. And he was the one who would say, too sweet to be sour, man of the hour, all that kind of shtick. Hmm. So Hogan took that and ran with it. He did it with a different type of charisma, but uh, he, he stole a lot of the lines. Hmm. Well, yeah. I don't want to say too much about his, his childhood and stuff, but he, he grows in, in the book, he, he grows up in, in Tampa, Florida. And as a young fellow, he learns how to play guitar, which will come in useful later. Um, and he goes to a youth ranch, and it's like a Christian ranch. So he, he like like a lot of the uh, kind of aging uh, narcissists in the, in the media, he, there's a kind of a sad ine inevitability to his crazy drift towards right-wing madness and, and overt Christianity. But he talks about how he was going to this ranch, and 
he meets this minister who's he's the one who explained the lesson of John 3.16 to me. He told me that life isn't a once around the block type of deal. He said that if I accepted the fact that Christ died on the cross to pay for my sins, I'd be cleansed of them. And even better, I wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life. That sounded like a hell of a deal to me. <laughs> so, yeah, there you go. He brings a... He... Uh, so that's the kind of thing that I would say it could have happened, or at least a version of it could have happened, but I doubt it was that significant in his life. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I grew up in Florida, probably pretty damn Christian. There was probably preachers everywhere saying things like that, you know, but I think the, you know, I say Hogan is a Christian and he always wore the cross around his neck throughout his wrestling career and stuff, but I mean, uh, in the famous words of Kirk Hammett, you live it or you lie it. uh, (laughs) I'm not sure he lives it. Another interesting aspect of his kind of background growing up was his, he, like, for a guy who would later make the kind of albums that we're going to talk about, <laughs> he was a legit bass player in an actual functioning band. Um, he talks here about playing in a, in a band in Florida growing up, um, playing sort of southern rock stuff and being buddies with groups like Iron Butterfly. And he, he says, I even did some studio work with Century Artists out of Atlanta, Georgia. And he makes out like he was making like a decent amount of money as a fairly young guy. Um, before he gets into wrestling. I, uh, mm, not so sure. Not so sure. I'd say he probably, like, you know, there was a time where I used to play kind of, you know, along the circuit in Cork and around the towns there and I'd get 150 euro to, to play blues bass or whatever. Was I making decent money, you know? Mm. I mean, there's a chance he could have met up with Iron Butterfly a few times. I very severely doubt he ever played on any, um, and any studio sessions, you know, like I've seen him play and he's rudimentary at best. Now, like he can play, but he's not a player, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I'd, I'd say he was, you know, a shitty little bass player hiding in the back. Uh, maybe maybe he got a bit more of a uh, prominent sort of focus on stage once he started pumping up on the gas. But the, the idea of him like as, as an actual musician who was making it, I think, is, is probably harsher. So he, he then gets interested in wrestling by going to local shows, which I presume are a reasonably small time. But kind of the next interesting thing that happens is he starts training with a guy, or he claims to go training with a guy called Hiro Matsuda, a Japanese guy. Yeah, so Hiro Matsuda is like a really legit Japanese wrestler, like uh, wrestled in the, in the rings of Japan for a long time, had a very stellar reputation, was one of these kind of... Um, liaison guys like between the american wrestlers in particular the florida scene and florida has always had a kind of a a very uh, vibrant wrestling culture you know like if you think before vince mcmahon kind of nationalized the wwf across the entirety of the united states and canada and in the world you know the wrestling business was broken into these like little what what, what were called territories they're essentially like little fiefdoms where promoters would have would have kind of like little monopolies and, and so, some promoters would have fairly sizable monopolies across a couple of states. Others would just run a certain town or, you know, a certain city or whatever. But Florida was a fairly prominent, you know, wrestling, um, uh, wrestling territory. You had um, championship wrestling or Florida championship wrestling, sorry, with uh, the promoter and the booker Mike Graham was there. Dusty Rhodes kind of got famous out of Florida would have been around the time that Hogan was starting he would have seen probably Dusty Rhodes cut promos and stuff like that and so Matsuda was one of these guys that would you know bring Americans over to Japan 
and then bring Japanese over to American, operate as a conduit, a liaison, a translator, etc. And the kind of, again, big-time apocryphal story that's always told. And there's versions of this in the kind of yarns that lots of different wrestlers spin, which is that, like, wrestling is this kind of secret society and you have to be initiated into it in a way where you have sufficient respect for the boundaries between it and the kind of quote-unquote rest of the world or normal world this goes back to the sort of carny origins isn't it yeah because once upon a time like wrestling was essentially kind of you can imagine like a strongman gimmick at a, at a carnival wrestling was a bit like that where you would have the, the champion and then you would ask someone in the crowd you know, to come in and try and wrestle the champion, but that was too much of a risking. What if the person from the crowd could actually beat up the champion? So then they'd start working it where where the person who would be, you know, volunteer and be accepted to go in would actually be a plant. And so that's kind of the origin of the whole world. And, you know, the carnivals keep their cards close to their chest because the whole thing is worked, right? You know, this is where all, all the language of wrestling, like Mark, work. Kayfabe. Uh, kayfabe. It all comes from the carnival. And so the apocryphal story is that Hogan got into the ring with Matsuda on day one. And one of the things you want to do is, again, create that level of respect, create that barrier between the real world and the kind of fake world of wrestling. But also there's there's a, a generation of wrestlers who are absolutely committed to this idea, which I do not believe for a second, that they believed wrestling was real until they went into their first match. Yeah, Hogan push, so, pushes that idea in this book. They all do. Ric Flair even, like, you know... I guess Rick, uh, you know, Rick Flair is such a good wrestler. It's easy to forget that he's, you know, deluded and insane, driven insane by this whole business too. But <laughs> Rick Flair, uh, all, they all tell this story that they got they got worked to the point where they did they were worked that it was a work uh, <laughs> rather than a shoot. So a shoot is the language for a real match. And uh, so Hogan goes in there, and the first thing Matsuda does is he breaks his leg. Yeah, and it's just really outrageous idea that I get I've struggled to comprehend over my basic lifetime of watching wrestling and thinking about it is that why wouldn't Hogan just call the cops on this person um, for breaking his leg for no reason and then but the, but, the, but the story is that Hogan had to be taught to respect the business and that Matsuda knew that if Hogan came back in nine months or a year when his leg had healed that he had a real student on his hands it's just, I mean, as an educator myself, the pedagogy at play here doesn't compute. But it also, <laughs> it also ties into how kind of like, you know, stupid martial arts films of that era would, would portray you have to do this terrible thing as your penance for, for getting into the secret inner circle, kind of. You have to show your worth. You have to make a sacrifice. It's like a symbolic thing almost. Yeah, and, and it's always uh, from this bizarre, again pedagogically incomprehensible sort of standpoint where I'm going to stay clued in as the teacher and I'm going to keep you ignorant and I'm not going to tell you why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. You know, like um, the Kill, Kill kid, Bill type stuff. A, yeah, we're in the Karate Kid, wax on, wax off. Yeah. He's, he's uh, painting the wall over or the varnishing the wooden wall in the garden over and over and over again. And then, you know, right when the when the timing is necessary this turns out he's been learning to fight all this yeah. time like why does why is, does john claude van damme have to learn how to like do the tea ceremony blindfolded because his master knows that when he goes to the kumite he'll have to you know it'll pay off in some way <laughs> yeah exactly so there's this there's this weird thing of like you have to be ignorant <laughs> in order to learn this stuff and also i'm not going to teach you what i'm actually or i'm not going to tell you what i'm actually teaching you while i'm teaching you 
because, um, because it, it so, makes it makes narrative sense but not realistic sense like when you're telling a story in a film yeah, so or in a, a, so a fake biography <laughs> yeah so like the the i've never heard of anyone who actually investigated it but it i i'd say there's a decent chance this is speculation so i don't know but i mean we're dealing with a book that is out full of lies so why wouldn't this one be to one but he, know, d- he did he but did like, train with matsuda that's not in question no no that's if matsuda trained him to wrestle 100 percent. but did matsuda break his leg or did he just hurt his leg Speaking you know, of the, him, uh, speak... put him into a leg lock and say like, pull at the tendon and go, aha, you see, you're dealing with some, you know, this is real. And Hogan goes, brother, and skirks off for a while and then realizes, ah, fuck it, I'll go back. That's one thing. But if he actually broke his leg, would like, who would go back? But what if like deluded teenagers come into this guy every week, thinking they got what it takes? So I've got to, I've got to sort the wheat from the chaff. I mean, he he still doesn't have to break their leg. So yeah, so he's breaking everybody's leg all <laughs> all week, like five five leg breaks a week. Like, um, Hogan says the reason why he went to that length, I suppose, is that Hogan came in as this tall, jacked up, blonde, good looking dude, who maybe thought he was the cock of the walk, and so Matsuda thought like, I have to show you that you're not above working hard and paying your dues and all this kind of shit. There there's is, a huge obsession in wrestling. With, there's a lot like, of hazing. To pay your dues. There's a lot of hazing yeah. in wrestling. That's yeah. real. Yeah, yeah. Pro forma hazing. You know, like there, you could. There is a maybe an argument to be made that a certain type of hazing has a purpose. Uh, I'm, I'm I personally, I think hazing is just like uh, the people who go through it repeat their trauma to, yeah. to justify it, so that they can feel okay about it. Yeah. You know, like uh, I, I can tell you in graduate school. There's a huge amount of hazing by people who feel as though, well, I went through this, yeah. so you have to go through this. It's like the old, um, pro- the old private school systems in Britain, and you know, like pre- the prefects giving the the young fellas a hard time, and then they give the next generation a hard time. Yeah, and it's just like at some point this could stop, and it would be better for everyone who came forward, and that doesn't remove the pain or trauma of the people who had to go through it, but it's also just you know from a utilitarian perspective a net gain for world happiness that there aren't more people with this you know like the argument in favor of this is well i had to suffer so now you have to suffer and it's like shouldn't the shouldn't it doesn't make more sense that because you had to suffer let's not repeat that and inflict that on others well but, i want to i want to mention briefly a story about the 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 territory system so when I was helping out a friend of the show, Chris, who won't mind me dropping a little story here, who worked for a now defunct uh, Cork-based wrestling organization. And it's just, as you probably know, a lot of people our age who set up groups like this now are very often influenced by sort of the attitude era of WWE and, and earlier stuff as well, depending on how old they are. So Chris and I drove up to another part of the country to help out with the show and Chris was we were walking around this town and it turned out that some rival organization had taken down all the posters and I thought that Chris that's ridiculous like this is not like it's not P.T. Barnum you know fighting with you know Ringling Brothers in the 1890s and he's like yeah but like they they're all these people have been influenced by you know people who actually did behave like that so that's what they've learned to do (laughs) there's a very strange thing about the wrestling business as well where especially where you know um uh, a scene for want of a better expression can you know can totally create its own dynamics and its own culture 
out of thin air because it's in no way actually related to the source material, let's say, of US wrestling. And yet, like you say, all these sort of Irish and other UK wrestler wrestling promotions and the people in them and all that were so, you know, enraptured by the tales being spun about the old territorial <laughs> days that they they kind of willingly recreated, for want of a better expression, systems or, or institutions that were like, you know, that, that are at best described as relics and more accurately described as, you know, absurd or just like problematic. And you know what? Vest- like, vestigial like, organs, you'd call it in, in biology. <laughs> there's like a huge reckoning going on now, uh, especially of like female wrestlers sort of uh, in the UK, but also in Ireland and, and, and also in the States, sort of showing like how the way in which those archaic formulas were implemented in in the independent wrestling scenes have been like very very toxic and problematic in terms of sexism misogyny grooming abuse so like we're seeing you know like matsuda broke hogan's leg well we're seeing like trainers in wrestling schools in england get fired now from wwe and other companies for grooming 16 17 year old girls that they were training to wrestle and stuff so it's kind of like you know there was there's an element of cowboys and the Wild Wild West and the Carnival to wrestling that has lingered on in ways that are just like just totally, you know, again, old hat, but also they were never fit for purpose in the first place, you know? Yeah. Well, here's a quick story from the book about uh, what Hogan says about Matsuda. He says, Matsuda held it against me that I used to go out and chase the wrestlers around every night. He knew if I could get a wrestler to talk to me, I would drink a beer or two with them. Then they would say, Terry was at the Imperial Room last night having a few beers. That's why he's tired today. When that happened, Matsuda would glare at me and say, No alcohol! And he would proceed to punish my body for drinking those beers. The funny thing was that Matsuda himself always smelled of alcohol. When I would wrestle him, I could smell it coming out of his pores. Finally, Matsuda and I got to be on friendlier terms, and he told me he drank two six-packs of beer every night before he went to bed. Well, I said, Jesus Christ, how can you be in this type of shape if you drink like that? And he said, that's why I have to train every day, because I drink like this. Brother, I might not have adopted all of Matsuda's philosophy, but I was happy happy to adopt that part. It's like, bloody hell, that's, like Hogan that's... drinks, all, he talks about drinking nonstop in this book. Yeah, I'd say, I'd, yeah, there's a, Eric Bischoff would always be like, oh, and I met Terry and we had to talk about the match and he pulled up a six pack with the, you know, or he got the cooler with a six pack and we had a beer. Actually, the quote Slash in this book about, about Bischoff drinking says, he calls up Hogan, he says, Hogan or Terry, I'm sitting here with six of my best friends. Oh, that's fucking lame. I'd like, so he's, t- again, like, I think the world has changed a lot since 2002 and uh, on these kinds of issues and in, in many ways for the better. And it's just like, in, when you hear it told like that, it's just like Hiro Matsuda is a sad, tragic case. He clearly needs help. <laughs> you know, he's breaking dudes' legs. He's drinking twelve beers every night. Like, and Hogan is like, "Oh, wow, what a legend!" My, que- my question is, is more is more is sad. more. My question is more prosaic. Like, in this day and age, it's pretty much if you're an athlete of any kind, like you don't smoke and you probably drink very little, if at all. And if you're a serious yeah. athlete, you absolutely don't drink at all. Like, this whole book is full of, like, like I'm not, like, wrestling is not real on, on the way it's presented, but it's still an intensely hardcore physical thing. And the, the better an athlete you are, the better a wrestler you're going to be. But And yet the whole culture that he portrays here is, 
is like lads staying up all night drinking and then wrestling the next day. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of guys in the in the wrestling business today who have washboard abs, and you can't have that kind of body if you're drinking or, or eating anything. So is this like something that's changed? Is is like is Hogan living through a a, a turning point? In wrestling, because he does say at one point that you know, as WWE gets more professional and, and gets na- nationwide, he says like the guys with the beer bellies were out, and and we you know the the even the regional uh, wrestling organizations weren't putting up with guys who were subpar anymore. Is that a turning point? I mean, kind of. It's the thing about it is right; those guys didn't have beer bellies; they had steroid bellies, <laughs> <laughs> so they were bloated and gigantic. But like, if you look at someone like. Um, uh, British Bulldog, right? Who I, I'll admit to being a big fan of British Bulldog. I always loved him as a kid. He would do these great um, delayed Hitt- high Hitman. vertical suplexes that were just amazing. Uh, but like he he was jacked. Like the st- the amount of steroids and testosterone and human growth hormone coursing through Davy Boy Smith's veins just like be, would probably you know kill an elephant. Um, and he was muscular, but he. Again, like he had no definition. He had a big belly. His tights were like pulled up above his belly button. Um, and but he was on painkillers and muscle relaxers, and I mean he smoked bloody crack cocaine. So like some of those lads maybe weren't getting drunk off their tits, but they were, you know, they were taking loads of cocaine, whether it was powder cocaine or crack, rock cocaine, or again they were all on any number of pills. Like Kevin Nash used to say, the reason why like part of the wrestlers' uniform was those you know big baggy Zubaz pants and a bum bag or CNE pack as they say in, the, in uh, North America was because they wanted to keep all their pills in the fanny pack for easy access you know, they're driving down the road on their way to the next Denny's or wherever the, whatever stupid restaurant they're going to and you just like pop a few somas which are the muscle relaxant that most of them like like Shawn Michaels was a, was a big man for the somas and Hawk from Legion of Doom or the Road Warriors was an absolute fiend for the somas as well so like i think hogan is saying there they all we all got more professional but like professional what sense in the ring as a performer like hogan wasn't really a good wrestler now hogan was okay he wasn't that bad but he developed a style which became kind of the derigor main event style like the kind of title belt title match championship level performance which involved doing pretty little like it involved resting on your charisma and you know communicating a superstar aura to rose ed rather than flying all over the place in feats of like unbelievable athletic achievement, um, which is probably more like the style of wrestling that, that people do today. It's just that their storylines aren't as good, the characters aren't as good, the emotional investment isn't as good. So like, it doesn't matter how many flips you do. Yeah. You have to care, you have to, care about like, to what end are you doing this. He does so admit Hogan, that a few Hogan times Hogan in the book. Was, Hogan was a punchy, kicky wrestler. Like the, one, one of the very few things that I've seen Hogan kind of um, be a bit forthcoming with regards to self-awareness on is that he always admits like Ric Flair was a way better wrestler than him because like it, throughout the 80s you have Ric Flair in the NWA as the champion and in WWF you have Hulk Hogan as the champion and Hogan has been able to admit that from a in-ring like standpoint or perspective Ric Flair you know is one of the greatest wrestlers of all time Hulk Hogan is a more transcendent cultural figure like he, Hulk Hogan is still unquestionably the most famous wrestler of all time. Like, there's just no two ways about it. Um, I don't know how well known Ric Flair is outside of wrestling. Yeah, it's a. I I I had an argument with someone about this once. So to say, who who in wrestling are 
kind of transcendent pop culture figures and I'm not convinced Ric Flair is one of those. No, I, it's, I think, it's, Ho- I think, it's Hogan and it's The Rock and it's Stone Cold at the end, and that's it, really. Yeah, and I, you know what? I'm not even sure Stone Cold yeah, is there I'd put anymore. him at a distant And if you think about second. The Rock, more people know Dwayne Johnson than they do The Rock. Do, does he not call himself The Rock still in films, no? No, he doesn't need okay. to. He's completely burst through that sort of limitation and... I think there are a lot of people who are like, oh, The Rock was a wrestler. I didn't know that. Wow. Well, uh, why, he, why, why would he admit to it? It's a deeply shameful business. Speaking of deeply shameful, this book is replete with 1.5 page chapters. <laughs> oh, yeah. And one coming up here is about Hogan talking about the, the Kearney wrestling language. So he says, if I wanted to tell you that you have an ugly face, but I didn't want anyone else to know, I'd say, Yizu... Hizav <laughs> and Ogizli Fizaz, <laughs> right? So that's that's the first example. Now here's his second example. See if you can see if you can decipher this crafty carny code. He might say to you, "Fizat Gizerl, she's got some bizig bizoobs." <laughs> oh God, of course, it, of course, that's his concern. There's a there's a there's a funny clip which I recommend you check out. It's from about 1980. Nine maybe so this would have, it was in the build up to WrestleMania five, which was uh, Macho Man versus Hogan. Really, actually, a very satisfying storyline about how Macho Man is kind of goes crazy with um, his paranoia that Hulk Hogan is trying to steal away the lovely Miss Elizabeth from, and so Macho Man goes evil after they have a, the Mega Powers Alliance, and then they have a match, and of course Hogan drops the leg and goes over clean in the middle, brother. But there's a scene where, like, Miss Elizabeth gets hurt because of a confusion in the ring when Macho Man and Hogan are tagging together. And then they go to a break. And when they come back, Miss Elizabeth is, is in a gurney or a stretch or whatever in the back. And Hogan is kind of, like, fawn, like fawning over her. Kind of like, oh, are you okay? Are you okay? Like, like Pluto from Randy's, Popeye. Yeah, Stolen olive Randy's oil. <laughs> Randy Savage comes back and says, you know, like, you had lust in your eyes, this kind of thing. And anyway, the, the, the heel-face dynamic is established. But Hogan is holding on to her, and the camera's on him. And he doesn't know that they've gone live yet. I guess he's looking down, so he doesn't see him. So he just, he's kind of, like, mumbling into his own mustache, almost. And he goes, <laughs> he says, like, can I get a design because of you? What? Is that him using the Kearney language? Yeah, so he says, time, time, because you. Q. Can I get a time cue? <laughs> it's it's well worth a watch. I I probably didn't do it justice there, but he's like, it's design, it's design cue. <laughs> it's 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 so funny because he's just like mumbling into his own mustache. All right, I've got a bit here where he talks about the the territory system. I found it quite useful. I flagged this one down just as a kind of a breakdown as to how the country was divided up and like it's just so it's interesting how the the one company eventually swallowed all of this up and kind of yeah. axed all the competition but in those days he, he makes out like the territories kind of respected each other's boundaries to some uh, respect is maybe a strong word it, it probably operated more like mafia kind of gangs <laughs> but here's what he says in those days the whole country was divided up into very distinct very closely guarded territories the worldwide wrestling federation which was run by vince mcmahon senior stretched from maine to maryland the crockett promotion had the carolinas jerry lawler and jerry jarrett had tennessee Georgia was its own territory. Florida was its own territory. Kansas City was a territory. San Francisco and Los Angeles each represented a territory. Texas was a few territories. 
And one of the yeah. biggest ones was the American Wrestling Association, AWA, which a guy named Vern, is it Gain? Vern Gain? <laughs> it's, it's Ganya. Oh, what? That, what, what even yeah. is that? And that's from, that's from Minneapolis. So what's funny, what's funny is so his name is spelled G-A-G-N-E yeah. <laughs> and it's Ganya. One of the lads from the last fan always calls him Gagney. <laughs> just like out, and you got it wrong in a different way, which is funny too. But yeah, so uh, the AWA was based on a Minneapolis, had all of Minnesota. It had, I think it went like it would have gone down to Colorado, also up to Winnipeg, um, and probably had the Dakotas as well, if if I'm not incorrect. But yeah, would have been the Midwest basically. Yeah, do you remember, this is a, a deep pull now, but when I was in um, Minnesota, I remember calling you once because I'd met two kids who were like the nephews or something of somebody who was a well-known, who had been a well-known Minnesotan wrestler. Now, it wasn't it wasn't any of the really big boys, but it was somebody fairly... Does that ring a bell? I don't remember who it was, but like Minnesota was a real kind of factory for wrestlers that went on to be pretty big deals like there, w- there was even a high school in robbinsdale minnesota that like there was like within two years or something there was something like eight people who ended up becoming uh very very prominent wrestlers came out of there so like rick flair is always built from charlotte north carolina because no he's, he he's yeah famous. he's from but he's from he's from minneapolis and what the right. fuck thinks it's like you kind of don't think of that because he's so especially if you're, if you're a wrestling fan you know you associate rick flair with charlotte they even call you know charlotte and a few places in Virginia, the towns at the NWA, uh, Crockett Promotions used to run all the time. They call that Flair Country. Um, but he, what, it's funny because when he speaks, he actually has a ten-mile-wide Minnesota. Oh, accent. he so does, <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, can he get that there going on? Doesn't he? <laughs> go to the bar for rum and coke. <laughs> well, Hogan, I, when, oh, Hogan, Hogan. <laughs> when I was living in Minnesota, I had a friend who used to tell me about the time when. Um, Jesse Ventura was the governor and he said that oh, yeah. uh, he yeah, he made he, he had this like you know against the press thing going on like Trump does and he used to call the press jackals and he made them have these like jackal passes that they had to have to get into his conferences <laughs> which like you know we thought was funny at the time but uh, turns out it's terrible and that was only the tip of the iceberg and and that that's an ongoing thing when i read books like this written by like these insane narcissist dudes telling me like over and over again how great they are it's like i i'm i i hear it in like the voice of a trump you know it's just that stuff isn't really funny anymore but speaking of which um, i'll just say very very quickly out of minnesota you also have animal animal and hawk the road warriors you have mr perfect you have um Axe and Smash, Demolition, you have, um, uh, what's his name, The Berserker, bunch of other, uh, bunch of other guys anyway, so it was a, a, and they were, a, most of those guys would have been trained by Vern Gagne, well, they would have been trained under Vern Gagne, not actually by him, it would have been Billy Robinson who probably trained them, but anyway, yeah, and so Hogan uh, didn't get trained there, but he made his name really in the AWA, in America, that's... He had actually gotten some success in Japan already. In New Japan, had even wrestled like Antonio Inoki, who's kind of like the, the he's the founder and the kind of you know the the supreme I don't know idol legend of New Japan. Uh, Hogan wrestled him even before he was anything of consequence in America. And Hogan had been in the WWWF before he went to the AWA, but his kind of character wasn't really set in place or whatever. And so 
it was, he, Hogan will give credit to Vern Gagne for kind of crediting, uh, for fashioning, sorry, some of the core facets of the quote-unquote Hulk Hogan character, insofar as there is one. He says here he's talking about when he's still being billed as Terry Boulder, and oh he's in the... Pen- was, don't forget he was uh, Sterling Golden before that. <laughs> he's in, kind of like, uh, remember when Austin was stunning... Stunning Steve Austin. So Hogan is talking yeah. about being in the Pensacola, Alabama territory. And he says, I, I presume this is AWA days. Uh, no, that would have been probably for Eddie Graham in, uh, in Florida. Florida. And he says, the wrestling audience was used to big 250 to 400 pound guys with big beer bellies and hair all over their bodies who didn't work out with weights the way I did. So to the wrestling world, I was Charles Atlas and Hercules rolled into one. And the fans were told that I came from Venice Beach, California, which made me a god to the people in Dothan and Mobile. It made them think I was something I wasn't. Which, oh, like, if he was in Mobile, yeah, the Alabama territory was different. He might have been working for Jerry Jarrett there. But look, that's so that's what he's saying there is rubbish, right? Because um, I, I, I can't say for sure that people in Alabama would have had access to um, to WWF material but like he wasn't this new thing by having a big body he was different and he hogan the thing about hogan is he does have a unique physical charisma i mean you can't deny that and look as a kid i was a hulkamaniac i was swept up in it and i mean i guess it's kind of ludicrous to say now but like i thought hogan was one of the coolest looking guys ever even though he's this guy with a handlebar mustache and a skullet and he's gigantic and his underpants are pulled up over his belly button because he doesn't have a six-pack you know, he, he has something about it. When you see Hulk Hogan, right, there's this there's this thing that people in the wrestling business always say, which is, like, there's the airport test, which means, like, you have a star in your hands if when this guy when this wrestler goes through the airport, people's heads turn. And Hogan is a head-turner. But Billy Graham was also a guy with thinning, bleached blonde hair and a gigantic jacked-up steroid body who was incredible on the mic at delivering these raps you know, in the kind of Muhammad Ali style. But the thing about Hogan, right? So, like, if you read Superstar Billy Graham's book, and he's a head case of a completely different description, but, like, he tells the story that uh, Billy Graham was wrestling in Florida, and he meets Hulk Hogan in a nightclub, and Hogan says, I'm starting out in the wrestling business, I'm training under Hiro Matsuda, what should I do to get ahead? And Billy Graham says, need to take steroids. And Hogan says, I don't know how to do that. So Billy Graham says, don't worry, I'll inject you your first time and then you'll know what to do. Oh, so Hogan is Hogan is saying, uh, you know, oh, these beer belly lads in Alabama were nothing on me. It's like, yes, because they weren't on the most intense cycle of, of steroids <laughs> known to humanity in 1981 or whenever the story's been told. Well, there's So n- next up in the book is when he meets Lou Ferrino, who, if you don't know, he, for, yeah, he was the, the Hulk from the Hulk TV show. Um, when when he wasn't Bruce Banner, he was David Banner in the show, wasn't he? When he gets angry, he turns into this this bodybuilder. So yeah. Hogan tells the story that they're at the same event, and the host says, "Oh my God, you're bigger than Lou Ferrigno. You're bigger than the Hulk." And I said, "That's because I'm the real Hulk," and that that's where his name co- came from. Rubbish. <laughs> Rubbish. Complete fiction. So the, he got the name hulk when the hulk tv show was on and they so vince mcmahon senior wanted there to be like a, a wrestler that could be relate quote-unquote relatable to the irish community in new york kind of like how bruno sammartino 
was relatable to the Italian community and Pedro Martinez uh, was relatable uh, to the Puerto Rican community and stuff. And so they gave him the name Hogan in match with Hulk. He was a big, massive Jack dude. This, there was this big, massive Jack dude on TV every week in the form of Lou Ferrigno, who was like, a, you know, he was a Mr. Olympia-level bodybuilder. Um, highly recommend watching him actually get, like, totally um, punked out by Schwarzenegger in the movie movie Pumping Iron, a really hilarious documentary. Uh, I met Lou Ferrigno a couple of years ago at Comic-Con. And he gave me the Carney handshake, which is where you limply grab someone's hand and don't squeeze at all, which is kind of in wrestling, it's a code like, don't worry, I'll take care of you in the wrestling bit, like I'll take care of you in the wrestling ring. Now that might have been just because Lou Ferrigno has been you know, taking steroids all his life and working out so hard that maybe he just can't squeeze his hand anymore. But it was a surreal moment. So you, you think he, Vince tells, or uh, Hogan tells the story about Vince like trying to come up with an Irish identity for him but like he, he just credits Hogan to that do you think it's impossible that the Lou Ferrigno story happened no you think that's just bullshit oh, yeah yeah look you have to get into the mentality or the, the mindset of bodybuilders like especially competitive bodybuilders you can't go around telling people oh you're bigger than me you're the real Hulk you know what I mean why like I, I'm not saying it's a healthy mindset but like that's not the mindset that allows you to pose on stage thinking that you're going to win this trophy you know what i mean he's because again bodybuilding messes with your head too right these guys are all have terrible dysmorphia and all the rest of it like there's no chance that lou ferrigno said to hulk hogan you're the real hulk i'm just <laughs> painted green for fun you know i don't see that at all you were uh, fond of that show as a kid i remember you had and like it was old then but i remember it being on tv when we were little hey look i'm always in favor of you know, guys grabbing steel bars and bending them and breaking down walls. It's good stuff. Next up in his in his uh, story, he talks about going. Yeah, he talks about going to Japan, and it's really interesting to me how, you know, I suppose back then, my my in my imagination, you know, people just didn't fly that often, and and you know, going somewhere like Japan would have been like a big deal. It would have been somewhere very distant and 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 like a dramatic thing to do. But these wrestlers were going out there for like stints of a few weeks, like back and forth, back and forth whenever they had an opening in their schedule because the nature of the business was so transi- transitional. Kind of interesting. Well, you could get, as a, as a gaijin, which is a foreigner, in Japan, you could get a lot of money for a short amount of time. So you could actually probably make more in three weeks on a tour in Japan than you would in the States for the rest of the year or something. So it was very lucrative. But uh, like I think, you know, our friend Owen, who went to Japan, told us, and my friend James said something similar, that, you know, it's pretty much as different from you know, where you might be used to. James from England, Owen is from Ireland, uh, I live in Canada, whatever. You know, it's as different from the quote-unquote Western world as you can, ba- you know, more or less get outside of North Korea, I suppose. And it w- the difference would have been even more amplified in the early 80s. So, like, almost all the wrestlers who went on tour to Japan in those days would say things like, you know, I brought 40 tins of baked beans so I could have some protein outside <laughs> of raw fish. You know, or, and Bob, Bob Backlund, who ended up... Um, doing the honours for Iron Sheik before Sheik dropped the belt to Hogan in uh, 1984, he said that like he remembers get, like hearing of protein powder for the first time and thinking, like, oh, that's going to be a, a, a godsend when I go to Japan so I don't have to bring all these tins of beans or eat just like tons upon tons of raw fish. Because like, you, know, you have to have a high-protein diet if you're going to maintain a high degree of muscle mass or whatever so it, it was a big deal for them to go and do this at the time you know when the world was not as connected and deal. travel yeah, wasn't as common huge deal. Uh, it also i i mean i've read a few 
wrestling biographies over the years, it, it always struck me that it, it seems like when they're talking about their early career, this was an option open to guys earlier in their career where like, let's say they hadn't quite made it in America, but if they went to Japan, they could kind of go up the ranks a bit or make a bit more money quickly. Yeah, I think I think there were like a few guys who kind of made their career in Japan and that was kind of like their primary source of income and they would spend a lot of time there. But in general, I think most of the North American wrestlers kind of saw Japan as a decent amount of money and you could maybe get yourself a nest egg or build up a, some, a degree of notoriety. But none of them really wanted to commit to that being something that they would have to do in perpetuity. Make an advertisement for air conditioners, (laughs) Hulk Hogan. (laughs) Uh, That that would be 1990, but it's coming. Yeah. So the kind of the wrestlers that would have been more known almost in Japan versus the States would be like Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody, who are kind of like two supremely legendary wrestlers. But if you kind of go to look at their output or their back catalog or whatever a lot of the stuff that they did in the states is pretty nondescript or uh, not particularly memorable but their output in japan is very very high uh, quality you know like that's where they made it whereas other guys did what you said which is kind of like the hogan stick where it's like you go and you you make some money you get some fame in japan but you're really you're gunning for a main event spot or main event money in the states his um his next chapter is about meeting andre the giant and getting friendly with him what was their relationship like in, in reality? He doesn't say anything outrageous here, he, you know, that I wouldn't know about Andre the Giant already, but, like, what is known about their actual relationship? Uh, it seems to be the case that Andre liked him. Uh, there's lots of stories about people that Andre didn't like, and he would be pretty vicious to them in the ring. Like, apparently he didn't like Randy Savage, the macho man, and would outright hurt him in the ring and stuff. Um, and Andre seemed to be, like... Andre was one of these guys that was pretty much protected and insulated from the consequences of what he did uh, just because he was such an attraction and they they like Vince McMahon senior especially but then junior kept this going too they worked pretty hard to maintain his aura so that he wouldn't be around all the time they didn't burn audiences out on the novelty of seeing him and so like he was one of the guys that would move around the territories more regularly so and he would typically come in and do a battle royal somewhere and win and that was kind of like the andre match mainly just because he didn't have to do much because you know from from pretty early on andre like do you know this like he was the thing about the the giantism or whatever is that your i think it's your pituitary gland that's right yeah this is it's a hormone that isn't secreted or something and so now you can get the gland taken out or so maybe it's the, the, the hormone um, continues to be secreted, uh, something like that. But nowadays, anyway, you can get the, the the gland taken out. So like Big Show, for example, the giant Paul White, he uh, got that gland taken out, so he stopped growing, whereas like Andre got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So there's actually footage of him like in the 60s and early 70s where he could roll around and he was fairly mobile and, you know, he kind of was athletic, but he just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So it got to the point where by the time Hogan met him, he wasn't immobile, but he wasn't that far from it. And he was in pretty much just agony all the time. So if he decided he didn't like you, there wasn't much you could do to stop him. But also, like, he wasn't going to do anything to make your match look good either. So by all accounts, he liked Hogan. He was perceptive and smart enough to the business that he saw that Hogan was kind of going to be a dance partner that he could make money with. 
And so, like, one of the things around WrestleMania 3, which is where you have the kind of famous Hogan and Andre match on front of the the gimmick worked attendance number of 93,000, which is not true, uh, <laughs> but they say it all the time, uh, is that, like, you know, Hogan will tell you, and maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but I guess this is, Hogan says he didn't know if Andre would let him win. That's bullshit. He said that... You know, if Andre wanted to beat him, he could have. No, probably not. Because, again, Andre was immobile, couldn't do anything. He said that uh, he didn't know in advance that Andre was going to let him body slam him, which, again, is bullshit. Oh, he, he, the, yeah, the, he, he claims that in this book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the version told in the book is that, you know, he's in the ring with him. And then out of nowhere, Andre says, slam me, boss. Um, <laughs> and then Hogan was like, oh, brother, what an honor. Rubbish. It was obviously planned. They worked up to it. Big story. And then Hogan is like, it was such an honor that he allowed me to slam him. Nobody had ever done that before. Rubbish. Andre. Hogan had worked Andre before in the WWWF and had been slammed by him. Right? This is going back maybe seven or eight years, but it's it happened. Andre had been slammed by a bunch of other people. And Andre was essentially trying desperately to wind down his career around that time because he was in just a mortal agony on a daily basis minute by minute and he went to mexico and got slammed by the biggest star there probably blue demon but i'm not sure i can't remember and he went to japan and got slammed by antonio Inoki. like he did a i'm gonna get slammed by the big stars in all the different kind of countries for gigantic paychecks on my way out the door so hogan might as well. well enough with Andre that Andre recognized that alright this is the guy that's going to slam me in the big match for my payday but Hogan wants to say as though oh brother it would the, the uh, passing of the torch almost yeah it's rubbish because <laughs> Hogan Hogan wants to say all the time that he once he got to the top everybody was out to get him and that uh, people the, there was always the like very real possibility that someone would try to actually shoot on him or like fight him for real in the ring in order to make their name by yeah. beating the top. There's a lot of that wrestler. in this book. There's also yeah, another so. another running theme seems to be like, you know, especially later in his career, Vince or, you know, the company wants him to lose to some new guy. And he's like, no way that, you know, the fans will never accept that because I'm Hulk Hogan. And then anyway, if, you know, by, by me beating them, that's going to make them look as good as they possibly can. You know, yeah. he, he, well, he returns to that over and over and over again. So there, there is a, a very, like, well-established, uh, I suppose, thing in wrestling that um, losing, you know, doesn't kill your your heat or your kind of, quote-unquote, engagement with the audience, whether they love you or they hate you, right? It's all about the way in which it goes down. And that, like, your push or the, the way in which the company's promoting you doesn't have to be destroyed or killed or ended outright just because you're pinned one, two, three in the middle of a match. It all depends on how it goes down. But the idea that losing doesn't negatively affect your perception in the fans' eyes is also rubbish, right? Especially if you lose in a way that makes you look like a chump. Because at the end of the day, it's, yeah, it's pretend fighting. But... Like, the point is to make you want to pay money to see one person win and the other person lose. And you have, like, you know, if you lose, if a wrestler loses in such a fashion where the fans think, like, ah, 
I don't have faith in him winning or whatever. I don't care to see someone else beat him up anymore because he lost it a way that, like, you know, his his significance or his importance has been diminished. Well, then you're kind of fucked, right? So, like, that's where all the politics of wrestling comes in, which is you have to try and protect your spot so that, you know, you want to be careful. Who do you lose to? When do you lose to? But or who do you lose and how do you lose to them and all that kind of stuff? And what Hogan was always a master manipulator of is kind of making sure that he beat people but also beat them in a way that would kind of send them back down the ladder. So the idea would be that, like, if you, if Hogan is on top of the mountain, what you want is kind of like a, a factory of heels to feed him. That's the language that Vince and other wrestling promotions that always use is that you build up a heel, you have them squash a bunch of people. So, like, let's say WrestleMania two, Hogan faces King Kong Bundy. King Kong Bundy beats millions of dudes over the course of an entire year, and he does this gimmick where he's like, I'm going to do a five count. So I'm going to beat you not just for three seconds, pin your shoulders to the mat for three seconds, I'll pin your shoulders to the mat for five seconds. Bundy does this to dude after dude after dude after dude, all these wrestlers defeated to the point where, like, oh, God, he's the big monster that's coming for Hulk Hogan. And he's a credible threat. That's the point. And Hulk Hogan's championship and the hero of all the fans is in genuine peril to this guy who's not just beating people for three seconds but five seconds so hogan goes into the big blue steel cage with the you know big spacing between the bars and all that in 1986 in wrestlemania 2 and he beats king kong bundy in a pretty perfunctory way nothing special drops the leg climbs out the cage king kong bundy never main events ever again right so it's all about the way in which you do it now there is a way to lose where you maintain your significance but Hogan specialized in just jobbing dudes out and making them look like they were never a threat to him in the first place and so throughout let's say 85 to 88 or 89 Hogan is fed all these dudes that main event against him and never main event again for the most surely Vinnie Mac like, knows this is bad business like why is he allowing this to continue because Hogan is is that popular so he's given he's given yeah she, for the most part. And it's not, it's not like the other guys aren't significant or they aren't, you know, still selling, but they're not selling at that level. And so, so long as Hogan is the golden goose, you don't need another goose to be laying gold eggs, right? Yeah. Every other goose can lay perfectly fine eggs that, you know, make nice eggs or nice uh, omelets or, you know, whatever the hell. So, like, you know, Hogan goes through Paul Orndorff. Hogan goes through One Man Gang. Hogan goes through Ted DiBiase, Million Dollar Man. He goes through Mr. Perfect. You know, he goes through them all. And... None of them ever make it to that level again. The only one that was ever able to match him, or at least come close, was Randy Savage, who's another kind of a generational talent. You know, like, Macho Man is really pretty much Mount Rushmore level in terms of his uh, just charisma and in-ring skill and all that. He, Ooh, might be, yeah. uh, uh, he might be a transcendent wrestling figure. I'd say a lot of people probably know him too. Uh, yeah, he, he's just again because of his his image and his crazy voice, and you see that showing up, uh, you know, in spoofs outside of wrestling, I suppose. Yeah, he's like eighties kind of trinket almost rather than. Yeah, he's like he's got kitsch value aside from yeah. he like you can imagine him. I don't know if he does or not, but you can imagine him showing up in Family Guy and people knowing oh, who God. he is. And not not a good reference, but like you know they have Kiss and they have they probably have had Hulk Hogan at some point. Um. um so the bit, on the topic of Vince trying to replace Hogan uh, and Hogan doing his kind of, you know, I'm going to keep my heat brothers, stay on top. The, 
the, the most profound example of that is WrestleMania 6, which actually also took place at the Toronto Sky Dome in 1990. And so Vince is finally, you know, he's decided Hogan is too old and it's time to move on. Um, and so he says, Ultimate Warrior is my new guy. And so they do a babyface versus babyface match, which is not something that the WWF traditionally did. It's always been called a... Um, a babyface territory, which means that you have a babyface champion and the champion repels challengers, whereas the NWA was more of a heel territory where you have Ric Flair as the dirtiest player in the game, sort of sneakily cheating and, and just about scraping by challenger after challenger after challenger. And, you know, instead of paying money to see the hero vanquish the villain, you're paying money to see the villain finally cast out of the, the castle, as it were. But so... Ultimate Warrior is a babyface. Hogan is still a babyface. And they do a, a match at the Sky Dome. And it's actually Hogan's, I'd say, very close to Hogan's best match. Certainly his best match in North, on North American soil. Uh, Pat Patterson was uh, apparently the architect of this. Um, but really good match. So finally Hogan loses. And he does the J-O-B. He jobs out, uh, he's jobbed out clean in the, in the middle of the ring he actually loses no funny business no interference no disqualification no cheating he loses fair and square but then in one of the most masterful reclaiming of the moment where hulk ultimate warrior is in the ring celebrating instead of just rolling out of the ring defeated hurt and then skulking off to the back so that the spotlight remains profound and, and powerful on ultimate warrior hogan does a very sympathetic oh my god I can't believe I just lost I nearly had him routine with a very very good kind of sympathetic and baby face eyes and he's running his hands through his kind of disgusting spaghetti hair uh, coming up stringy spaghetti on the sides and he goes off to the side to, to ringside and he picks up the belt and in an act of generous magnanimous humanity he is the one who passes the belt to Ultimate Warrior, showing that he is a generous, kind, understanding, good sportsman. And when Ultimate Warrior is lifting the belt up in the corner turnbuckle, nobody's looking at him. They're all looking at Hogan, thinking, what a generous, thoughtful guy. God, isn't he great? Can't wait to see him champion again. And if I remember correctly, Fuck's Hogan sake. basically says that in the book. He does, He's yeah, like, he does. You know, I, f I fucking worked that son of a bitch. I got yeah. what I wanted. But he, fra he frames it as like, you know, only Hogan could have done this. And, you know, this moment wouldn't have worked if I wasn't so popular and I hadn't done this. And, you know, he, he there's no shame for him whatsoever. This is a obviously the right thing to do. But the only way... Not only for him, me. but for the company, for the for the match, for everybody. Yeah, so I, yeah, again, if I remember correctly, he says something like, I knew that Warrior wasn't going to work as champion. And so I decided on the, off the cuff, which is total bullshit as well. This was definitely pre-planned. But he says, like, I decided on the cuff to do this because I knew that this would maintain my sort of drawing power and my popularity with the audience so that when the Ultimate Warrior inevitably floundered and failed, I'd be there ready to oh, get the torch back and I have take it, it I have the finishing the... line. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break with my plan here a little bit and jump ahead because I have this bit, this scene marked. So Hogan says, As I left the arena, 68,000 people in Skydome watched me go. Ultimate Warrior held a belt over his head in victory and no one cared. <laughs> and then he says, 
Turned out I was right about Ultimate Warrior. He couldn't carry the load as heavyweight champion, not the way Hulk Hogan had. Vince's attempt to move in a different direction hadn't been the success he hoped. <laughs> you see, the thing is, that, first of all, as I, I watched WrestleMania 6, not live, because I would have been too young, but I watched it on video when I was a kid. And uh, my sympathies were with Hogan in that moment, for sure. Uh, so he, he worked me, played me like a fiddle, as it were, my young mind. But Hogan ended up being correct. Ultimate Warrior couldn't. Yeah, I mean, he had his own problems, for sure. Business did decline, and Ultimate Warrior is one of the, like, uh, one of the most vicious pieces of shit in wrestling history in lots of ways. And certainly, like, one of the most uh, kind of insane and, off, like, uh, unhinged and all that. And, you know, like, if you listen to wrestling podcasts where people who've worked in the business talk, you know, they, there's a version of speak where they talk around things and they... They find bizarre terminology to describe people, you know, that no one who's actually expressing what they really think would say, you know, because they're, they're being this weird version of diplomatic or something about things. But nobody has anything good to say about Ultimate Warrior. Like, he, uh, if you knew the man, Jim Helwig, it sounds like he was just a complete raving, you know, loony. Um, but, 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 it's very important to emphasize that when Hogan says, ah, oh, it turns out he couldn't carry the load and they needed to give the torch back to me, brother. Well, what would have happened if you put him over like a million dollars instead of putting him over in such a fashion where everybody who saw it instantly doubted his, you know, the centrality of him versus the centrality of you? Like, you made sure that his title reign was under suspicion and doubt from the very onset because your plan was to stay on top. And, like, from a purely selfish standpoint, which I suppose, you know, should we expect Hogan to care more about the wrestling business or the health of Vince McMahon's bank balance than his own private bank balance? I suppose not. But then tell us that. Over tell and us. over in this book, like, after Hogan kind of peaks, you know, obviously he's still a big draw and he would continue to be, but after he sort of peaks, like, the second that Vince starts to think, who's my next big guy going to be? Hogan is just, like sabotaging Classic. every chance for that to happen over and over oh. again and eric bishop who ran wcw and hired hulk hogan in 1994 uh would say that whenever they would come to him about you know uh, uh having hogan lose to someone or let's say we're trying to use hogan to elevate someone else hogan would stroke his eric bishop always says calls the mustache a fu manchu which i think is wrong <laughs> it's not it's no it's a handle yeah it is yeah it's it's but Eric Bishop would say, he would sort of look down, stroke the Fu Manchu and say, that doesn't work for me, brother. <laughs> which, which basically, like, what works for you, Terry? Does it involve you fucking dropping the leg and going over one, two, three, clean the middle? Because that seems to work for you fairly regularly. Anything else work? <laughs> um, I reckon we'll have to do this as a multi-part uh, episode, which I kind of half guessed might happen. But I think to wrap up this bit, I would, if, if you'll indulge me, I shall read the entirety of chapter 16, Bullseye on My Back, which I, I think is the favourite. And uh, it's, a, it's an extended haiku, I believe. It shouldn't be too taxing, being as it's all of 1.5 pages in massive font with about three line spacing. <laughs> so Hogan says, the entirety of chapter 16, fame and success come with a price, brother. He, do, he doesn't say brother there, but he says it enough times in the book. 
For Hulk Hogan, that meant being a target for every wrestler who wanted to make a name for himself. There were guys who had been in the wrestling business for 20 years, and their biggest week had been $2,000. So when they got a chance to wrestle Hulk Hogan, should they have a nice match and do what they're supposed to do, or should they make a name for themselves by knocking his teeth out? What would happen if they broke Hulk Hogan's arm? What would that do for their career? Or what would happen if instead of a back suplex, they threw my knees up over my head and broke my neck? God damn, they might end up with a million dollar payday. I knew what I was in for every night. I stepped into the ring. These guys in the dressing room would smile and say, Hi, I'm Billy Bob. But when I stepped into the ring, they would try to stick their thumb into my socket and rip my eye out. I was going to Japan. I was going to South Africa. I would come in there for one day and leave. So a guy's boss might tell him not to hurt me. But if he didn't listen to the boss, and he wouldn't get fired, and he might become a much bigger star, sounds like a no-brainer to me. On any given night, I didn't know if a guy was going to give me a clean match or try to bite my damn finger off. All you've got to do is look at the scars on my finger to see how often they tried. I don't think anybody in this business has ever gone through that except me. Mm, is this language starting to remind you of anyone? No one else had that, <laughs> no one else had that extra carrot hanging over their head. Take that guy out and you win yourself a pot of gold. There you go. That's... Total, total, like, that's just colossal rubbish. Like, that's not how the wrestling business works at all. Because, again, like I said, that handshake, that limp handshake says, I'm going to take care of you at the ring. The, the business, yeah, it's full of deceit. And there's huge amounts of political machinations behind the scenes to, you know, engender the, 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 the um, what's the word, preordained outcomes that fans see in the ring. But once you're in the ring, if you behave in a way that's unprofessional by deliberately hurting someone, you have no future in the business because nobody will ever work with you again. And in a more kind of cowboy, unregulated or less transparent time, the rest of the locker room would have beat the shit out of you. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. You know, because if you think about it like this, even if Hulk Hogan was monumentally unpopular in the locker room for being covetous and selfish and overly protective of his spot and all that, Nonetheless, everybody wanted to work on the same card as Hulk Hogan because he sold more tickets than everyone else and you had a better chance of selling your merchandise, your t-shirts, your gimmicks, whatever, at the break on a Hulk Hogan card than did anyone else. And wrestling is, especially back then, less so now, was it was paid out on the basis of the tickets to sold to each event, right? You got a percentage of the gate or whatever. So wrestlers wanted to work on the same card as Hogan because that was the guaranteed payday. Like, I mentioned that, you know, in Hogan's kind of like, um, you know, really blitzing Hulkamania run of the mid-80s, he worked with Paul Orndorff, and they worked all around the horn, as they say, uh, going through all the towns. Paul Orndorff was basically, he had a problem with his arm, and he needed surgery. But if he went in to get that surgery, when he came back, the spot of working with Hogan wouldn't be there. So he ended up saying, all right, screw this problem with my arm. I'll take the risk because uh, this is once-in-a-lifetime money that I'm looking at here. And he did the program with Hogan. And his, his arm ended up so badly messed up that he has uh, like one arm that's about a quarter the size of the other. It's all the muscles atrophied and died. And he's got this like weird T-Rex arm on one side. And even, like, he continued wrestling and he had, like, a big jacked bodybuilder arm on one side and a tiny little atrophied arm on the other. And that's because you want to make that Hogan money. And so it didn't make sense by wrestling logic, not even, never mind, like, the logic of the real world or even the morality of the real world to not beat up Hogan when he's trying to have a fake scripted fight with you. But also, like, by the logic of, you know, 
making money in that business, especially going forward on a, an ongoing basis. It just made no sense. But Hogan is super paranoid. It's like one of his defining characteristics that he's obsessed with the idea that people are out to get him and that he's the special one. He's at the top of the mountain, but that it's treacherous to be there and that he has to constantly look over his shoulder. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there for reasons of time. Um, I, can I make one final point? Yeah. Something I think is important. I'm, all, I'm always interested in uh, who um, the ghostwriters for these kinds of books are. So who do you enlist for you know, a project like this, right? Because ultimately, for those who don't know, ghostwritten autobiographies are essentially just like uh, the, the person in question speaks into a cassette or, you know, into a, I don't know, what you call them, the digiphone or whatever. And then a writer takes that and actually turns it into a book. So the guy who co-wrote this or ghost wrote this with Hogan is called Michael Jan Friedman. And it seems as though he mostly wrote fiction uh, and wrote some um, like some stuff in the comic world. He seemed to write X-Men and some other stuff for some DC comics. But he seemed to, his the vast majority of his output is um, books related to existing kind of franchises or whatever, including like writing books. Um, like tie-in, tie-in fiction. Yeah, exactly. So he wrote some books related to Aliens, to Superman, like the Lois and Clark Superman TV show, if you remember that from the 90s. With I Dean do. Kane Dean Cain, uh, Terry Hatcher. Terry Hatcher, yeah. And, but he wrote a ton of Star Trek books, like dozens of Star Trek books across the different sort of Star Trek properties. Did he write any of series. the, did he ghost write any of the ones with Shatner where Shatner like, you know, brings Kirk back from the dead after generations or any, was that him No. No, but I, I have read some of those. Sadly. <laughs> those are very Hogan-esque, actually. By that, the way. That's what made me think uh, of it. Um, uh, hey, Shatner is in the WWE Hall of Fame. He's a he's a grifter, just like Trump and Hogan and all the rest of them. <laughs> he's a total worker. But So he's written books that are sort of tie-ins to Star Trek, the original series, The Next Generation, um, and uh, Klingon stuff. But under uh, the Star Trek Starfleet Academy banner... He wrote a book in 1995 called Secret of the Lizard People. Oh, David Icke, Connections. Uh, well, you know, in the spirit of esoteric reading and, you know, uh, the lack of evidence is evidence. I have to assume that it is indeed, you know, an unfurling of the conspiracy in a yeah. place that the people in power would, would suspect at least. Boxcar Willie, you know. Right. Exactly. <laughs> to to whet your appetites for the next episode, folks, um, in the next episode, Hogan will talk about his early days with the WWF and meeting the Iron Sheik, who's also a crazy character. He will claim Cliff to he will claim to have invented wrestlers coming out to their own theme song, um, oh. and <laughs> he will claim that uh, Vern Gagne is that it? That Gagne, yeah. Vern Gagne paid other wrestlers to break his leg, so all of that to look forward to. So thanks. And of, and, and his heel run in WCW with the NWO. Uh, eventually if we get that far yes <laughs> all right fair. thanks for your extensive wrestling knowledge donald always a pleasure it's deeply shameful as usual for me to uh express it in public but uh i am compelled to do so and uh, we'll talk next time brother literally Indeed we will and, I, and i'm going over one two three clean the middle <laughs> all right thanks dude bye you've been listening to white atlantic weird a podcast about why people believe weird things Usually, that means monsters, UFOs, and conspiracies, but in this case, I think you can say 
anyone who has read Hulk Hogan's book and taken it at face value has come to believe some pretty weird things as well. As usual, we really appreciate any reviews you can put onto whichever podcasting platform you are using. A lot of stars and nice things in text really help a lot to increase our visibility. Also, if you'd like to reach out to us, the best place to do it is still Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, and we still have a presence on Instagram as well, where we are at Wide Atlantic Weird. So we're excited to hear from you and get ideas for other episodes you'd like to hear going forward. So as usual, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.